senior year of high school, I uh, made my Carnegie Hall debut and it was my first time in New York City. By that point, I had already applied to all the pre-med colleges because I thought I was going to stop music after this. And I fell in love with the city, fell in love with the culture, the art scene, all of it. And I came back from that performance and I was like, I want to keep doing music. This is what I want to do. And so I ultimately ended up choosing to go to Columbia and Juilliard so that I could be in New York. And um, so I made the move here. And so music was always very natural love, very natural passion of mine. I did it because I wanted to. But after doing it for two decades, and I had a a very rigorous uh, touring schedule that uh, for a classical music soloist, for those who may not know, it is really at the highest level when you are touring the world at that level. You can't miss a note. You got to show up ready to go you can't turn off because even no matter what how grueling the travel schedule is you have to be able to perform at your highest level because that's the expectation of the audience and i would be on the road six to eight weeks at a time rarely saw family or friends um my whole life became art and, and music and as i was nearing my late 20s i just there were a number of confluences that i think came into play I began to wonder what the meaning of what it was that I was doing. Like I, it was just one concert after another or a media appearance. And I started to lose connection to why I was doing this, the why of it. Um, in addition to that, I felt very much more and more that my life did not belong to me, that my life belonged to agents and managers and PR people and to the public to this nameless, faceless audience that somehow had a hold on me. I had to go and perform for them every single day, every day, every other day. And I began to question if that's really what I wanted to continue to do uh, for the rest of my life. And as I said, you know, from early on, from my childhood, I've always been a person of many interests. Uh, Even as I did music, I I was continuing to write and read and, and, and explore other interests. And I reached a point where I wanted to feel like I owned my life. And it was a very big decision. And certainly I got a lot of pushback on it from uh, everyone in my life because I had spent a lifetime building a career that uh, most people want. You know, that's why you go to school. That's why you train to have this soloist career. And ultimately, in the end, yes, it was, I had to move through my own personal fear. Who am I outside of music? I had to question that. Who am I? Do I, I I didn't know. I had no answer. I didn't know what I was going to do outside of music. But I knew somehow inside of me that there was more that I wanted to do, that more than, more than this. And in the end, I think the people who had the hardest time accepting my decision was not me, it was everyone around me, because they had this idea of me that my identity was that of a pianist. And I was the one that knew, no, my identity is more than this. And so much as it was, you know, a very big fear I had to move through in that moment, ultimately, um, ultimately, it was not as big as it was for maybe other people to accept that choice. So uh, I decided to leave the industry i decided to leave that chapter in that chapter of my life to see who i was outside of music 
and that began a whole other chapter in my life. But um, it was to this day probably the biggest, most life-altering decisions I have ever made. That's interesting because you said you you started learning piano when you were nine months old. So that's yes. it. Seems like you were already yes. destined to have a an atypical life, if there is such a thing as a typical life. But uh, is, does that decision have anything to do with you going by Grace N on LinkedIn as opposed to Nikai? Uh, yes. So I do. I am cautious online. There were a lot of experiences as well near the latter part of my uh, musical career. Uh, that was right around the time that social media was starting to grow. And I already had a natural sort of, I think because of my career as an artist, I have a natural talent for understanding people and connecting with people. And so as soon as, you know, MySpace and, and Twitter and a whole bunch of other platforms started popping up, uh, I immediately hopped on there. I was one of the few first musicians to hop on those platforms because I saw the potential of being able to connect with my audiences and communicate with them via those platforms. Uh, but because they were at its infancy, uh, a lot of safety mechanisms were not in place yet. And so I did have um, some difficult uh, incidents that happened uh, with an online stalker and with some other things that happened with regards to uh, people sort of threatening my, my safety uh, while I was touring as a soloist. And so I pulled off of all of socials. And to this day also, I remain um, very cautious about what I put out there in terms of my full name because because I had that experience in the past. I'm sorry you had that experience. Have you spoken to like some of your colleagues in, in the music industry as it also happened to them? Is that is that pretty common? Yes, at that at that time, yes. I think now there are a lot more safeguards. There's, you know, your ability to block, your ability to report things. We didn't have that. Like Twitter was like the wild, wild west back then. There was like literally no safety mechanisms in place. Uh, I know of several women uh, who went through, not just musicians, but also, for example, book editors uh, who have had to deal with some uh, scary moments uh, because of social media during that time. Yeah. Speaking of books, uh, you've you've written a book, correct? I've written several novels, yes. <laughs> several several books. Okay. Could several you books, yes. What when when did that start? When did you decide that sure. you wanted to write? Sure. So um while I was touring as a pianist, uh I was a soloist, so I was always uh, traveling alone. And one of my favorite things to do between rehearsals and you know everything, concerts, when I was in my hotel room, uh there were a couple of things I loved to do, and it translates to what I ended up doing later. Uh I loved uh reading, I loved writing just for my own personal sort of joy. And I loved um, actually coding. I taught myself how to code. And it was just sort of a, a hobby, a creative sort of hobby that I picked up because uh, this was right around the time that websites and all these things were starting to, to, to bloom WordPress and all this stuff was coming out into the horizon. And um, I just found it so fascinating to build things and to create things. And so I started experimenting with design, experimenting with building sites, um, just for fun. And after I left music, um, a new sort of chapter emerged in my life. Again, because of the website building and the stuff, the stuff I did for me, an accidental marketing consulting career emerged because friends began to ask me, hey, can you do my website for me? I saw you did this. Can you design my logo for me? Can you do it? So that kind of became an accidental career that started in digital marketing. At the same time, I decided 
because I am an artist and I really wanted to continue artistic pursuits, uh, I was going to start writing fiction novels. And so those were the two paths that emerged after I left music. And so I wrote eight novels under a pen name that was also for me very deeply, deeply healing and a deeply cathartic time for me because I had spent my entire life on stage under my name. And I wanted to be off stage, no one knowing that it's me and exploring ideas and themes that were important to me. And that's really what those eight novels were for me, like a, an avenue for me to creatively explore things that maybe I had not been able to talk about or speak about or, or think about previously under the safety of a pen name. So that was my creative pursuit while at the same time this consulting career developed uh, sort of accidentally. Um, and then that digital marketing consulting career ended up going from websites and graphic design into mobile app development. And then it ended up into events. And then on the front end of things with brand and content strategy, I was living in Europe at the time. So uh, I ended up working with Adidas and, and Zara and a couple of big brands there. Um, and that really was where my marketing career, brand and marketing career kind of exploded. Interesting. That's really interesting how that happens. And uh, I guess you trust your heart. seems like your heart has led you to the piano and it's led you away from the piano. And you also contextualize in a way that I hadn't considered that being a celebrity is kind of traumatic in some respects. It, we all kind of seek that fame and fortune, but at the same time, there's like a limitation to it as well, it seems, in terms of expression and exploration, because you have to color within the lines to an extent. Um, could you explain a little bit about the psychology of that now that you're you know, seeing it from perhaps both sides? I love that question. I think kind of going back to what I said about how it's so difficult to feel like your life belongs to you when your life is managed and at the ex sort of put to the expectation of everyone else. And, you know, what I am sort of thankful for, if there's one thing I'm thankful for, is that social media did not emerge until like the latter part of my career, right before I was going to leave. And I, I was able to leverage it in a way that worked for me. But I can only imagine if that had been around when I was a child and I had been doing what I was doing and the effect it would have had on me in, I think, a very challenging way. Because how do you, how can you honor and continue to remain aligned with who you are when there are so many voices and so many expectations from others of who they think you should be, right? And I think that's something that everybody, you know, regardless of whether you're in the public eye or not, can relate to. The thing about being in the public eye is that that's amplified and magnified by like a million percent. And it becomes almost, um, there, were, there were moments where I felt like I, I just couldn't do anything because if I did something, someone would notice it or they would point it out or they would, you know, have some commentary on it and, and, and feeling literally constrained in what I could say, what I could explore and what I could do. And I think that was ultimately, you know, when I talk about not owning my life or feeling like I didn't own my life is it's that feeling of, your arms and your legs are cut off and you're so constrained and this is the only thing people want from you and this is the only thing you can do and i wanted to challenge that because i knew that that wasn't mentally or emotionally sustainable for me 
to continue for the rest of my life. With the piano, uh, piano for example, it seems like you're really expected to be perfect, uh, or at least you're striving for perfection in terms of the impact of each note, each, uh, your fingers on the keys, the, the pace of it, everything. When I speak, as you have already noticed, I, I make mistakes. I sometimes stutter. I sometimes want to change what, my thought mid-sentence. Do you have a similar experience when you're playing the piano? So the expectation is that technical perfection is the baseline, right? So it is, <laughs> it is, it is not... Um, no pressure. Uh, yeah, yeah, I know. That's exactly it. So I call myself a recovering perfectionist. I call myself a recovering uh, because I was so perfectionistic about everything in my life, really. Um, and it took many, many years for me to kind of unravel that and untangle that and, and figure out where it was coming from. Um, I'm going to go back to that idea of limitation. I think uh, perfectionism, unfortunately, in our culture tends to be tends to be looked at highly in a certain way. Like, oh, this person must value quality. It's associated with achievement. It's associated with, and it's really not, in, in my opinion. I think it's very much something that uh, limits uh, oneself uh, because you become unable to, to do things for fear of failure, for fear of judgment, for fear of making a mistake. And uh, when your own sense of worth and your own sense of identity is attached to a result, this is not a healthy uh, place to be in. So it took many years for me to kind of move past that. Um, again, the the kind of thinking during that time in my life was I, I just, it would be unforgivable if I, it, like to myself, not necessarily that someone would say it, but internally, if I missed a note, if I made a mistake on stage, it would be like, catastrophic internally inside of me. It would be unforgivable for myself. It sounds like a death sentence, like perfectionism. Yes, it's, it's, it, it is. I, I think so. I, I, one of the biggest things I've always, in all the work that I do and uh, when I work with people or teach others, I, I always, my biggest thing is please make mistakes. If you're not making mistakes, you're not growing. I would love you to fall flat on your face and make a mistake so you understand that the world does not end. The sky does not fall down if you make a mistake, but you need to be able to move through that fear, right? The, you have to be able to move that fear first to actually allow failure or mistakes to happen so that you recognize that, oh, this is not as horrible as I thought it was going to be. Yeah. And correct me if I'm wrong, or please contextualize this statement if there's room to, but it seems like perfectionism is only possible to our understanding in emulation, because you can't really be perfectly innovating, correct? I absolutely agree. First of all, perfection is an illusion, right? It's an illusion. So yeah, even if I played every single note on a musical score, I guess you could say I played every note perfectly, but then that's not true because there's so many layers of interpretation. There's so many layers of sound. There's no perfect. It doesn't exist. I played the notes. Like you said, it's emulation. I played the notes on the score, the score, but that doesn't necessarily equate to perfect in the sense like the greatest performance or the greatest, you know, thing of all time. So there is a difference and perfection, as you said, innovation, originality, right? The boldness and the uniqueness of who we are. Is, lies in the imperfection, lies in the things that make us different. It lies outside of emulation, outside of copying, outside of all of that. Um, it's really where it exists. And so it's so necessary, I think. Uh, one of the things that I'm very passionate about is, and I think it's so critical for the creative uh, sort of journey, uh, and in any journey, actually, in life, to be less focused 
on results or to not focus at all on results really and to focus on the process instead because that's really where all the value and the beauty and the growth and the lessons and everything uh if we can learn how to focus on the process the results will unfold the way they must and and that's such a huge shift i think for a lot of people because we're so results oriented especially um in western culture that's really interesting to hear you say because as a westerner who went to asia i see that uh, especially in uh, eastern cultures so I, I i guess it's both sides just depends on how you're looking at it but i think for us as humans you know we're we're looking for you to tell me who i am where it's like echolocation and um if i can show you that i went to harvard or i got this score or something like that and I feel safe, but I don't really feel safe. I just feel temporarily safe because if I'm looking for other things that define me, obviously that's coming from a sense of lack. So yeah, I think we all have a little bit of exploration to do regarding that and are doing it. Um, but going to your books, uh, what kind of themes did you like to explore in fiction? So in fiction, I think for, I, so I wrote, just for context, I wrote a, fat, a young adult fantasy series and then I wrote uh an adult psychological suspense uh, mini-series. I wouldn't really call it an epic series, but like a couple of books in that. So for me, I think some of the themes that I deeply explored, there were certainly identity, uh, has always been a big theme for me. Uh, love has always been a big theme for me. What, what it is, uh, what it means to realize it, not only in how we love others, but how we learn to love ourselves. I think, um, this has been a, a huge uh, one. Also, I think... Could I ask you something really sure. quick based on that? Sure. I'm exploring with the uh, concept that we can only love others in relation to how we love ourselves. I was wondering what your thoughts were on I that. agree 1,000%. I just did a post on it in Christmas <laughs> on X about that, about um, our capacity and ability to love others is based on our capacity and ability to love ourselves. And it, I think the most remarkable thing as I get older is that I really feel more and more with each passing year, that our entire time on this planet, our entire journey is to understand love. And that a huge part of that is, of course, learning how to love ourselves. How can we accept ourselves? How can we have compassion for ourselves? And that, of course, ends up translating into our relationships with others and how we're able to love others. But I, I am 100% on agreement with you there. Well, thank you. I didn't mean to derail you. Uh, if you would like to continue with the themes you're exploring with your books, I'm curious. I think, yeah, those were the, also I think about discovering your own power and voice. I think we're also an important theme in all of my books. Yeah. Are you familiar with the author David Sedaris? Yes, I have not read. I know the name. Okay, he does some. He does readings of his of his work, and um, he actually uh, really likes Japan. He travels there uh, from time to time, and particularly like the fashion and stuff. And I remember one interview he was talking about like he feels sorry for people that don't write. Because for him, it's such like a life-saving practice that he can like put all of his thoughts. It's almost like emptying your pockets on the table or something. You're just like, what is this? And sometimes you can only see something uh, through that process. Uh, you can you can think about it silently. You can meditate. You can have a conversation with someone. You can write. All these things unlock different facets of your experience, I think. So yeah, I think writing is vitally important. I agree. Writing is thinking. Writing is thinking. So uh, for me also, I call my writing process disentangling. Like it's a way for me to kind of get all these thoughts out and untangle them and kind of start to see new perspectives and how things fit together. And um, it's always extraordinarily illuminating. 
as a pianist, I, I'm curious, are you ambidextrous? Uh, no, I'm, I'm very much right-handed. That's a great question. <laughs> so, yeah, so you, uh, I, I use uh, hashi with my right hand and write with my left, so I can eat and write at the same really? time. Really? Oh, that's... It just happened oh, that's that way. so interesting. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. No, 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 I'm not. I'm very, very much okay, right-handed. Okay. Yeah. So, and when you wrote, did you first write, like, pen to paper as a draft, or was it uh, typing? Uh, it was it was typing. I write my journal pen to paper, but for my creative works, it's it, it was always typing. Do you notice a difference in like the thoughts or the the process when you're writing pen to paper versus uh, typing? I tend to encourage writers. Uh, there's a free writing exercise that I teach, and it must be done by hand. Like that free writing exercise in which you write for five minutes without stopping, because the idea of it is that you're you're trying to challenge if you move your hand quickly across the page you're trying to challenge your mind to think as clearly and as quickly as your hand moving across the page the reason people struggle with typing is because we do it so fast that your mind is not used to operating at that speed and so very often people will stop i don't know what to write next i'm looking at this blank page and so one of the habits that um I try to encourage writers to develop is you free write five minutes by hand, learn to connect this sort of muscle memory almost, you know, the writing muscle in your brain with the act of writing itself. And once you can get strengthening that muscle in your, in your brain to think faster, to be able to think with more clarity uh, with regards to language, then you can transfer over to uh, typing. So one of the things that I do, especially if I'm feeling stuck, uh, is I'll go back to my free writing exercise and I'll kind of get that muscle moving again before going back to the computer. Interesting. I I noticed that it was a lot easier to write pen to paper. I, I didn't really have any writer's block and I was always surprised because I'd start thinking I'd write one page and I'd wind up writing five or more. And I was like, where did that come from? Why, why can't I write like that when I'm typing? And uh, so perhaps it has to do with the pace of it. Interesting. So um, going into marketing, then you have uh, language, you have uh, identity, you have uh, music and, and performance and these facets kind of coming together. How does that translate to you now focusing on digital marketing? So I think uh, I'm Kizna. So with Kizna, uh, I do fractional CMO work uh, focused on brand and content strategy and community development. Um, one of the things that I get, of course, obviously frequently asked is sort of the pivots I've made in my life, especially in terms of my career. Um, they're big pivots. But I think oftentimes uh, we have a tendency to limit ourselves to think, OK, I went to school for this, so therefore I need to do this or this is the only thing I can do. You know, it becomes that type of thinking. And I've always encouraged people to zoom out uh, and to really understand the larger macro concept of what it is that you love. And for me, if I could put it into one concept, what has driven me, my passion, my entire life that I could keep doing until the last day of my life is human connection. And human connection, it doesn't matter. There's so many, I can do it through music, I can do it through writing, I can do it through teaching, I can do it through uh, uh, leadership consulting, I can do it through certainly marketing and brand, which I'm doing now. Um, so it's about really discovering that underlying a concept that has that emotional resonance for yourself um, that has allowed me to make these different pivots. Because for me, to others, it seems like big changes. To me, it doesn't in the end. They're all different facets of that, 
that, that love that I have for connecting with people and communicating with others and building that connection. So it doesn't matter whether it's uh, through a creative work or through speaking like this or through uh, figuring out a brand story and figuring out how to uh, create content that connects with others and builds a community. To me, it's all the same. That does make sense. If, you're, if your North Star is love and connection, I think uh, everything falls into place. Regarding identity, uh, going back to that, you're from Hawaii. Now you live in New York. Um, it sounds like you have some at least distant relatives still in Japan. Um, me and my categorization, I don't see Hawaii and New York as, as mixing. I, I see Japan and American mixing a lot smoother than Hawaii and New York. Could you talk about what it's like being Hawaiian in New York, what you love about New York and uh, your thoughts on identity? I, I actually, when people ask, so I was I was born in Japan. I have uh, my relatives are all in Japan. Um, moved to Hawaii when I was three months old. My immediate family, so my mother and my brother are still in Hawaii. And then of course I'm in New York, but I also lived for about eight years in Europe. Uh, I lived in Holland and in Spain and I have many friends uh, there. Um, I always say these are my four homes. When people ask me where you're from, I say, well, I'm from Japan, Hawaii, New York, and uh, Spain. <laughs> so this is usually my response because that's how, that's how I, I feel. And um, I think for me right now, you know, I lived in New York for about a decade before I moved to Europe. And so this is my sort of second chapter in New York coming back here. Um, I think it's a place that for me, it's one of my favorite certain places in the world. I think it's a place that, what I love about it is that it has such a, such an expansiveness, such a space to allow everyone to truly be who they are. That's what I love about it. There's something that expands you in the city and no one cares. You can be whoever you want and like you can explore different things and be curious and try. And, and there's such a incredible freedom I feel with that uh, here. Um, that I absolutely love. So I'm a big believer in seasons of life. And my chapter, so after living in Europe, I moved back to Hawaii for about six, five, six years. And I felt that that season was coming to a close and it was time for my next chapter, my next season, and decided to move back to New York. That makes a lot of sense, especially given your openness to, to life and like, sounds like quantum energy and you're just, you're receptive to everything. And I've found in a few places that I've lived that it unlocks pieces of me that wouldn't necessarily have been unlocked, if you will, uh, before. But one interesting thing that I discovered is that you can never go back. And perhaps that's always the case, but you don't really notice it. It's like, it's like watching grass grow when you're in it. But for example, when I go back to my hometown, like it's like a, two ships that have gone like kept on their, their paths and th that place has changed and I have changed. So all of my memories and connection like no longer exist, which might seem obvious, but it's not obvious to me. And it's like, where are these things that I wanted to go back to? And, and then it's like, well, wait a minute. Now I'm a foreigner in my hometown. And that's a weird thing. It's a, it's a lot easier to be a foreigner in a place that you're a foreigner, like that matches, but a foreigner in your hometown is so bizarre. I identify with that so much because when I went back to Hawaii after living in Europe from stuff, I had been, I had left, you know, almost two decades prior, and then going back to my hometown was such a eye-opening experience, and I think for me, it was a necessary chapter in my life because 
it allowed me to put the ghosts of the past to rest. And I think that was the reason for my season back in Hawaii over the past uh, five, six years. Um, because, as I said, I had had such an unusual childhood growing up there. And I think there were a lot of unresolved issues for me in terms of my connection with my hometown. And But I, when I went back, like you said, there was no tie there. There was no connection because it, it had been so many years. So I had to forge sort of a new path and a new relationship with uh, Hawaii that I hadn't had before. And in that sense, put the past to rest. And what's so interesting about me coming back to New York now, it's the same thing because I have left for so long and I come back and it's kind of like, it's like old lovers seeing each other again. It's like, there's there's a certainly a certain ease and a familiar, familiarity from the past, but at the same time, we've both grown kind of older and wiser and we're discovering a new kind of relationship that didn't exist before. So that's been kind of my experience with both Hawaii and New York in that sense. But I, I love that. I love what you said. It's, it's just, it, it is different. It won't be the same. It cannot be the same. As someone who's, who's also like moved around a little bit, uh, like globally, um, I like, I think it was uh, John Glenn's quote, uh, the astronaut that was shocked um, when he saw Earth uh, from space, that there were no borders. It's just land and water. And I feel like each of us can kind of share in the globe and um, perhaps uh, to an extent. And I, I feel like, you know, if, if we're picking up different energy, different vistas at different times of our lives, it's each of us is picking up a different like bit of information for the global community. And going back to what you talked about with love and connection, it's like it goes back to like the hive mind and advances the genome into the future. What do you think about that? Yes, I love that. I, I love that. And I, I think, you know, it becomes something more apparent the more we travel. And you're someone who is obviously, you've traveled and you've lived uh, all over. Uh, I have traveled my entire life and lived all over as well. And I think the more we challenge ourselves, because it is a challenge, I think oftentimes people are too afraid to, to do that. Uh, but if, the more we challenge ourselves outside of, certainly our comfort zone or what we're used to, uh, our own culture, the things that we identify with, the more, like you said, it expands, you know, our, our understanding of, of self, but also our understanding of the collective, right? And to understand ultimately the human experience, that in the end, uh, it doesn't matter where you live or the culture, or what, we're all human. And there's something that is enormously powerful and connective about that. Regarding brands, I uh, came to this kind of epiphany, I guess you could call it for, for me anyway, that countries are kind of like companies and that politics is basically just like branding. And a brand gives you advantage or disadvantage if you're trying to run like a counter like campaign or something. Um, but it's like if I if you have two people trying to sell you something and one person's brand is better, there's a higher chance of success, less resources required for that deal um, on the part of the seller. And so people want to establish a good brand. It's like the gift that keeps on giving, but it's also something you have to protect. Um, so I was curious, like what, how would you describe brand and, and its importance? Brand to me is identity. Um, and just as 
human identity is complex in the way that we've been speaking about, uh, brand identity is also complex. There are numerous factors that are involved in it, including, you know, just if we think of it just from a human perspective, right, we are, of course, the sum of our experiences, our stories, right, like what it is that we align with, our values. We are also part of our identity is formed by the people around us, our community, our families, all of that. And then there's also context. Context is, for example, I am an Asian American, an Asian woman in America. If I was in Japan, I would be part of the majority. In America, I am part of the minority. This changes my positioning and how my identity, uh, how I feel about my identity, how, how I understand my identity, right? Depending on that context. It's the same thing with brand. So context for brand from a business perspective would be where in the market do you fit? What is your positioning? That matters a lot. You know, if you're here, if you're here, it will change that. Uh, when we talk about community, that's your audience, your consumers, like the people who are around you, the people you're trying to speak with. And of course, your internal values, your vision, your mission, what it is, uh, the core concepts driving your story as a brand. So it's the intersection of these three different elements that really form what a brand is, in my opinion. And ultimately, in the end, the whole purpose of that, the whole purpose of identity, whether it's human or whether it's as a brand, uh, is about connection, right? We understand ourselves so that we are able to understand and connect with others. What are some good brands, in your opinion, what are some brands that you like and feel like they um, go about preserving the brand well? I think for me, by a huge margin, I don't quite think anyone else comes close. I would have to say Nike. I think Nike has one of the best brands uh, and marketing teams in the world. They are always challenging uh, predetermined uh, paradigms and frameworks. So they're always very progressive, very innovative. They are very culturally relevant, always. They seem to have a pulse, always on the zeitgeist and what's happening. They are tremendous. I was just giving a workshop uh, the other day on one of their recent uh, television ads uh, uh, and using it as an example of their ability to connect with their audience and creating something that was powerful, emotionally resonant, uh, inspiring, um, and translating that into a concept that goes much, much, much beyond, uh, far beyond shoes or you know any actual product. It's, it's more of a conceptual idea that people can identify with and connect with. So uh, I would have to say Nike. And what is it that they do? And um, if you could like distill uh, one or two kind of points from your workshop, what is it that they do so well? So what they do so well is that they they understand that people connect not necessarily over a product. Again, going back to the zooming in and zooming out thing that I spoke about earlier, people often get so zoomed in and they're trying to push their product and market their product and the product is, it's not. Nike sells, the example I used just uh, uh, for context is the Deion Sanders um, commercial in which he's talking about chasing dreams and what it means to chase a dream. And it's just him sitting in front of the camera and it, it, the camera is just focused on him. And it's almost like he's just right there on a FaceTime with you, speaking with you. But he's talking about dreams. This has nothing to do with shoes. Of course, Nike is associated as a brand with high performance, you know, with talent, all these things. But that message resonates on so many levels to the entrepreneur who's starting out, to the person who has a dream of it, it, pivoting and trying something new, to the person who wants to travel. With it. So many le levels. It takes something that is a core concept of Yes, dreaming of something more high performance. It comes from the shoe, of course, but they've elevated it into something that emotionally 
connects with the audience so that they can take that in for themselves and receive it in their own stories, right? And this is what any great piece of communication, whether it's with brands, a great book, a great book will not be literal in telling you something. A great book will challenge you to think for yourself and to reflect and to take something from that story and apply it to your own life, right? And brand is the same thing. Communication in that way is always um, similar. There's so many layers and nuances to it. But if you can capture that, if you can understand what it means to connect with an audience. And one of the things I predicted, and uh, I wrote a recent essay on my predictions for 2024, I think this humanization of brand is going to be even more critical moving forward in every aspect. Uh, we've had a whole era of about 20 years of a tremendous focus on performance marketing, on data, on you know all of that. And I think we're going to see a shift back this year uh, into really focusing on how to emotionally connect with your audience, how to create authentic connections uh, with your audience, and to do things in a way where they can adopt your story into their own. When you say connects, uh, I think that basically also means participation because the the audience um, or the, the client is, they're connecting emotionally, so they're participating with their thoughts, feelings, and contributing. It's something that I accidentally, I guess, discovered in my role as a tour guide when um, I'd, I'd research and I'd plan and I'd, I'd want to do a perfect job. And it's just impossible. There's too many variables. There's too much experience. I'm just one person and you have 14 minds with different knowledge, different questions that I couldn't anticipate. Sometimes they got me and it's like, what do I do? What do I do? And then I started including them in the process as I showed them, like, instead of keeping the car as close to my chest, it's like, this is what I've done to prepare for your tour. This is what I've done in previous, uh, um, you know, uh, tours, trips. And here's what we're going to do. Here's why I think it's a good idea. Here's some like free time. And I welcome you to participate. And it was like, it was night and day. It was just, everyone was uh, pretty much pulling in the same direction. Um, and it was just more of a positive mindset because rather than me kind of talk at them, it was more participating together towards an outcome. Yes, yes, yes. I think that, that brings up two, I think, really critical points. Uh, number one, assumption is the most dangerous enemy of all, right? This is the first thing we learn in marketing. You cannot assume anything about your audience, about people, about who you're trying to speak with. The most number one thing is to ask and listen. It's the, one of the most critical skills um, in connection. Number two, I think uh, what's also very apparent over the past, I think, two decades is that cultural expectations have shifted. People expect to be engaged. It is not one directional. It is not the way it used to be where brands or businesses would just broadcast something on television or you'd get an advertisement in the magazine and there was no way for people to interact with it. We no longer live in that era. We live in an era in which people expect to engage uh, with companies. They expect to be able to give feedback. They expect to be involved in all of that and valued in that way. And uh, one of the mistakes that uh, I see uh, many businesses make and many of my clients, uh, as well as some of the larger legacy sort of businesses and media, is that they keep treating it as if it's still a broadcast. It's not a broadcast. It's not one way. Um, and until you can really shift that with each passing year, you become more and more irrelevant because uh, people and consumers are going to gravitate towards 
businesses and brands who are building authentic community, who are engaging, who are listening to their consumers and listening to their feedback and incorporating that into whatever it is that they're developing. So uh, I think that's a really, really interesting point. When you do uh, public speaking, what kind of engagements are you attracted to? I, what I would like to do, actually this year, I would like to focus a bit more on uh, speaking about brand and content strategy, certainly in the marketing sphere. Uh, I have spoken in the past, of course, tremendously about my life, uh, about art, about uh, the intersection of art and technology. I've spoken about education and leadership. Um, so some of my engagements this year are related around career pivots and, and leadership. Uh, but that is something I'm looking to do much more of this year. Because your uh, communication style is, I think, very, very unique. Uh, I think you have a kind of a gift there as well. Perhaps it's part of the same uh, thought process as playing an instrument. But I noticed in your interview um, in 2009 uh, on, I forget the the, the channel, um, the, but it was your second CD, I believe. And you were uh, talking about it and she was asking you about um, some, it, it seemed almost rehearsed in how well you answered the, the questions, but I assume it's not rehearsed. So I was thinking perhaps, you know, you enjoy public speaking and, and if not, you should do more of it. Thank you. I, I, I do enjoy it. And I consider it part of sort of my educational initiative. So I would like to do more of it moving forward this year. Do you still play piano? Yes, I do. Almost every day I touch the piano. Yeah. And every once in a while I have um, some advanced graduate students who will uh, take a master class with me. Um, and so I do still enjoy teaching it. My last performance was, uh, I think it was like 2018, I want to say. So I still do occasionally perform, but only if it's uh, something that's important to me. So that last concert was a charity fundraising event and it was uh, for a cause that was important to me. So um, I think that was also really important to me that I had the power to choose uh, when and where I would uh, share my talent in that way. So I do still play the piano. I see, that's nice. And what have you not done that you want to do? <laughs> the question of the, of the day. Uh, many, many things. You know, I'm doing Kizuna now. I love what it is that I do. Uh, I just, I just had an inter I just did an interview prior to this in which I was speaking about, you know, when people ask me, what are you going to do five years from now? I always say, I don't know. And that's the beauty of it. I don't know. Maybe, maybe I'll still be doing Kizuna. Maybe I'll decide to pivot and explore something else uh, that I'm curious about. Um, I think uh, oh, there's just so many, there's so many things that I would love to do. Um, I'd love to do some more things maybe with, in nature, maybe with animals, maybe with cooking and lifestyle, um, just many, <laughs> many things. Yeah, fair enough. What about travel? Are there any destinations you have top of your list? I, you know, I have not been back to Europe in about, when was that? I'm going to say two years. So I'm kind of overdue for a trip and also Japan because I haven't been back to see my uh, family since pre-pandemic because Japan had been, uh, the borders had been closed. So uh, right now, probably those two are kind of high on my list. Where were you born in Japan? Kagoshima. Oh, okay. Kagoshima. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I visited there a few times on tour. There was actually a lady from the States um, who had left Kagoshima in the war. Uh, and made her way to Tokyo as a teenager, married a serviceman, went to the U.S., uh, grew up there, and then 
her husband had passed and she wanted to come back to the motherland uh, one more time before uh, she followed him and uh, wanted to meet her distant cousins and stuff. But this is obviously well before social media and this and that. So we're, we're doing a bit of sleuthing, a little bit of detective game, contacting like news agencies and stuff and newspapers and trying to figure out like, you know, this is her name. This is where she lived more or less. Can you like figure out? And eventually we were able to connect her with like a distant cousin. Um, and that was like a really interesting like experience and just kind of put like a human life in context because it seems like it's forever when you're young uh, and it's actually just a blink of an eye, but it's part, your blink is like part of the greater organism. I think it's not like, you know, just you, it's like, it's all connected. Um, and that was, that was really interesting, but yeah, I, I know Kagoshima, uh, Satsumaimo, I think uh, the, yeah. Yeah. Satsumaimo. Yes. <laughs> and, and Satsuma Shochu, also the Shochu there. It's very nice. <laughs> So what's uh, like one of your favorite Japanese dishes or types of food? Oh my goodness. There's a list. Oh my God. Well, definitely. Well, obviously sushi, sashimi, but quality, quality. Uh, um, let's see. I love, uh, you know, I gotta, I gotta say, I like the izakayas. I like the izakaya food, uh, which is perfect to go along with the, with the alcohol there. I love, um, of course, tempura and uh, okonomiyaki and takoyaki and gyoza these are all street foods it's all the street foods um gyoza let's see omurice when it's done really well is like fabulous kare of course yeah i really like japanese curry actually i like you you know you're drawn to the sushi and all of that of course but over time it, it kind of grew on me i was like i don't know just something about it i i really like um and i i kind of it's one of my staples now oh okay okay are you like a spicy curry person? Yeah, I mean, within within reason. I liked uh, Koko Ichibanya, not because it's like some kind of you know fancy food, but because they had this fun, like they gamified it a little bit where you could choose your spice level, like one to 10. Oh, I didn't know that. Really? Okay. Yeah, yeah. And I don't know if this is true, but a friend of mine told me that you, you have to like qualify above six. I only got to three, so I would never know. But he said like in order to do 10, you have to like, you have like a card and it shows. And I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't doubt it because it's like, it's a cool little game that you could play where um, if someone wanted to go seven, they'd have to first get six, get your membership card, and then you could get the high level spice. But I can't imagine what that tastes like because three was already making me sweat. Yeah, kare is great. It's my kind of go-to. I love making it myself, yeah. Oh, wow, yeah. So you do it all. Have you thought of like getting your motorcycle license? I have thought of skydiving. So motorcycles are a no for me just because the sound, I'm very sensitive to sound. And just the sound of a motorcycle for me is one of the, I think it might be the one really number one sound I do not like in this world. It might be like the sound of you're breaking Yamaha's I know, heart. I just, They've got tuning forks I, I for just, their symbol. It was like based I just on the... can't do motorcycles. However, I do want to do skydiving. That's kind of on my vision board for this year. Have you done paragliding? No, I haven't. Have you? I have. I've done both, and I'd recommend you you know follow your heart. Do do what you like. I, I'm kind of I have this love hate relationship with heights. I, I like going there, and I'm really scared there at the same time. And um, so I thought I'd do skydiving to challenge myself. And it's like shock, like like nothing makes sense. It's like, I'm already scared of flying. Why am I then jumping out of the airplane? This makes no sense. And I, I remember vividly like photographs of like, those are the mountains, that's the sea. And you're going so fast that you can just tilt your hands like this and it spins your body around. And the air becomes water because you're going so fast, it's kind of like compressing it where you're, if you've been underwater, it's kind of a similar sensation in your nose. Um, and uh, 
it's, I mean, it's fun in a sense. It's like shockingly fun in, in a literal sense. And then I went paragliding and it's like, I, I you know, bias here, I guess, but I, I think it's way better. Um, Cause you're just, it's silent. The parachute's already open. Otherwise you don't take off and you just run off a mountain basically just do, do, do. And then you just float and you can like ride the um, air currents, the, what do they call it? The up, up something up. And you, you ride the, um, for like half an hour, you can ride them. Uh, Cause you go early in the morning. It's, a, it's really fun. Um, so you maybe try both. See what you prefer. I will. Oh, that sounds interesting. Okay. I'll add it to my list. How about diving? I So I am not the strongest swimmer. I do have to say one of my things that I love is I'm more of like a hiker. Like I love hiking. I love running. On the water, I do paddle boarding. I think that's the big thing that I really love. But I haven't really – I'm not the best swimmer, so I haven't done really any kind of diving. Although I'm – I am interested maybe going somewhere like Costa Rica or somewhere and like getting my license and kind of exploring things. But uh, I have swam with dolphins in Hawaii. Uh, but in Hawaii, I was more of a, again, other than the occasional um, paddle boarding, I usually went to the mountains. So I was hiking a lot and, and running a lot. Going back to, to Brand and what you said about Nike, what advice would you give to new startups? Uh, people looking, we have to kind of, divert resources between building a product that people respect and also making that connection and spending marketing dollars on on that. I think one of the biggest mistakes I see with startups is they start brand work too late in the process. It is very critical to understand that brand and marketing work hand in hand with business development meaning it's not something to be siloed it's not something you attach on or add on at the very end it needs to work together with what is happening in terms of product build, but what it is that they want to do ultimately, because brand takes that in order to be able to create story and messaging and content that will allow us to build the community that will support what it is you're doing as a business. When it's siloed and we don't have that communication, it's the number one mistake I see. Uh, and they just bring you on and they're like, okay, sell this. It, it doesn't work that way. I, I, we need to understand why was this product built? Why are you doing this? What is the point of it? What is the ultimate goal? We need to understand all of these nuances in order to create language and messaging and story that will resonate. Um, because you know, you can't sell a product by just diving into the and this, again, is another example that I see often where they'll get into the really technical details because they're really excited. The, maybe the CEO is a is a coder or he was involved in the back end or whatever in the technical aspects of it. And they try to sell it by talking about all of these amazing technical innovations and all the things, why this product is different. And no one cares. No one cares. They don't, they don't want to hear that. So how do we translate that into a story and a message that will resonate? With the people in the way that you want and in order for that to happen um marketing and brand needs to work alongside as early as possible with business development why are first impressions so strong that's a great question because when we don't know someone well i mean i always relate everything back to how we behave as humans right I mean, because ultimately that's what brand and marketing is when we don't know someone well, we immediately go by sort of our instinct or intuition and gut feeling when we, when we meet someone. We don't have enough information or data to be able to truly understand you know, someone's story or their truth or anything like that. So that initial contact, what is the immediate emotional impression, the immediate gut feeling? Maybe they may not remember your product or 
quite remember your name, but they remember a certain color or they remember a certain tone or they remember a certain clever use of a word that stays with you, right? Uh, that resonates with you in some way. That's why it's important because then from there, the door opens, just like with real life, when you meet someone for the first time, you get a good impression, some kind of instinct that's, that this is nice, the door has been opened. And only once that door opens, can you start to build upon that relationship and to be able to open that door wider. In the case of a rebrand, where they already have that sunk cost on the initial um, opinion or re uh, relationship, what advice would you give? Repetition or how, how would you go about a rebrand? So I actually have experience with this in my, during the corporate, uh, during my corporate career, I was brought on uh, for a rebrand for actually a hotel uh, in Waikiki. A uh, at the time they weren't luxury. They were a three-star hotel that had undergone a top to bottom physical um, renovation and had also changed their name. And they went from a three-star to a five-star hotel. And they brought me on to lead the rebrand and the transformation. Um, and to build a marketing team from the ground up. I think it is critically important. Again, this ties back to understanding the importance of brand and marketing and why it's such a critical part of business, right? If your brand is no longer relevant culturally or no longer connecting or no longer in alignment with what it is that you want to do and where the zeitgeist currently is, no matter how much money you put into advertising or whatever it is trying to save it, it won't work. So is it a big project? Is it painful to pivot in that way? Yes, but it's also important to understand why it's necessary to pivot and the, and the value of that. Um, it's far better to understand that earlier, like with anything in life, if you can pivot earlier, you know, when, as soon as you recognize the problem and you start making uh, moves to pivot, it's better than like trying to like push it out. Let's see if we can just hold off for another year, another two years. That's another year, another two years that you're just falling behind. Um, the brands that will succeed, uh, continue to succeed 2024 and onward. And this is going to, the, the time frame is going to become even faster based on technology and the changes that we're seeing. Agility and nimbleness will be the two decisive factors in which brands will succeed. Things will keep changing. More stuff is going to be coming out this year. There's going to be things with AI, other technology changes. The ones who are willing to be able to say, okay, we need to pivot now and to not be afraid of that and to understand the importance of it are the ones that will survive and thrive. Sounds like people like you are going to do just fine. I think it might be a double-edged sword kind of, but do you face any pushback being a pianist that went into marketing? Like, oh, you know, you can't market. You're, you're from a different domain. Never. <laughs> That's never, that hasn't happened. I think um, probably because marketing is considered a creative field to begin with. Uh, I think brand and marketing is, is in general. Um, I think if there was push up back that way, I, you know, I'm someone that's very big on alignment. I don't work or collaborate or do anything unless I feel that something is in alignment with who I am and what is important to me at this, at this moment in time. Um, so if that ever were to come my way, I would know immediately, well, this is not an alignment. So this is not something that's for me. Interesting. So there's that authenticity. I felt kind of, I guess, insecure when I uh, tried to pivot from 
tourism. Like I, I was identified as a tour guide and that's all I would ever be. That's all people would see me as, as I talked about my experience. Oh, you're a tour guide. That's how I interpreted it. Maybe it's inaccurate, but so I was curious, like if, if, you know, I were to go into like say marketing or something like that, if it, um, you know, I was kind of putting myself in your shoes, uh, trying to anyway. And so I was wondering if, if someone's like, you're a pianist, like, what are you, why are you a marketer now? So but I, it goes back to what I was talking about earlier about uh, zooming out into that larger concept, right? There's so many skills that you take away from what you did uh, in tourism that you can apply to so many different fields, limitless really, and industries, right? Transferable skills. So it's about, again, I think, uh, and I encourage anyone who's, who's listening to this to really, um, to not limit yourself. We're all, I, I think we have a tendency to, to limit ourselves when we zoom in that way, but rather to zoom out and to say, okay, what is the macro concept? What is really what drives me? What is it that I love? And then an infinite array of possibilities will open up before you. Great advice. Is there anything that you want to leave us with regarding marketing or branding or life journey that we haven't touched on so far? I hope that the work that I do I think like, like most people, I hope that the work I do is impactful and meaningful. And I think one of the threads that has uh, woven throughout our conversation today is about the idea of connection and the connection between the individual and the collective. And so I do hope that whatever it is that you do, that people will, whether you're running a brand, a business, whether you're an individual who's listening to this and wondering about the next steps in life, to really lean into your humanness, to lean into your humanity that will become enormously more important with each passing year as technology continues to exponentially uh, advance. Embrace it, embrace all of that, including the learning moments, including stumbling and falling down, including the mistakes, all of those along the way, uh, and to embrace uh, that humanity. I think that would be the number one thing. I don't care what field you're in for brands lean into, again, humanization of brand. How do you connect with people on a human level, embrace the human experience? This would be the number one thing I think I'd like everyone to keep in mind. Okay. And KizunaNYC.com is your website? Yes. For more information, you can find out um, everything you need on my website. Okay. Well, thank you so much for talking to me today. It was really interesting. Thank you. Thanks for having me, David. I appreciate it.